So we've got cut off your limb, poke out your eye, worms that never die, salted with fire. Welcome to church. <laughs> this is like, this is one of those texts that you go, oh, yeah, you know, I've searched the children's storybook Bibles. Not one of them have this. Could you imagine getting your little eight-year-old before we go to bed? And everyone will be salted with fire. Cut it off, cut it off, cut it off, poke it out, or you will enter the flames of hell. This, this is not one of those like lighthearted texts, but there is a strong warning. Duh, we know that. But in order to figure out what the warning is, first we need to see who the warning is to. I've read this and have been scared by this text since I was a kid, but this week it was so helpful for me to figure one thing out. Now look, if you have your Bible, go to Mark um, 9 and just look at verse 30. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. It says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know, anyone to know where they were because he was, and here's the key phrase, teaching his who? His disciples. So if you can understand what Jesus is saying, you need to know who he's talking to. He's not talking to the random person who goes down the road. If you're here and you're just checking out faith, uh, spirituality, Christianity, Jesus, when you read things like this, you need to read them carefully. Jesus is not talking to the crowd. He's pulled his friends his close disciples. So you get this sports analogy. If you're a coach, you are probably harder on your most talented athletes. Would you agree? Those with the potential. Now, those who show up for the first practice but never show up again, you're probably not going to say too much to them. But those who you see have it, you're going to be really intense. Why? Because you want to pull out good. In order to pull out good, you need to get rid of the bad. And that's what we see in Jesus. Verse 33. When he was in the house... He asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? And they kept quiet because they had argued about who is the greatest. And so, so if we want to know what he's talking about, salted with fire, hell, cut it off. He's talking to his 12 disciples who love him the most and are the closest. And he has encountered them talking about who's the greatest. So it's in light of that when when you see your greatest athlete, if you're the coach, when you see him goofing off, when you see him going off, what you do, you get in their face for the good. So there is a huge warning. I'm not going to gloss it over. Jesus is warning his disciples, but you need to know he's doing it out of a heart of love. He sees potential. He sees where they're about to go. Now, the truth is, like the 12, let's assume we're like the 12. Like the 12, we live in a world of competing interests, don't we? I mean, just think of life with these devices. If you ever wondered, am I uh, easily distracted? Just walk around with a phone that has extra features. I mean, uh, iTunes, there are one million apps. One million. One million apps. Fake fireplaces. Every, I mean, anything. You could do your cars. You could do your banking. All on that. You can email. You can text. You can Skype. And if you want to, you can go old school and you can call me. Right? All on my phone. Now, because I have a phone, I have the potential of being distracted. Now, let's say, hypothetically speaking, that as a human being, which I am, as a human being, I should interact with other human beings. Can we just assume that for a second? So let's just say I've got my phone and I've got other, let's say, people I love. I've got my wife. I've got my son. I, every time I take out my phone, I have a choice to make. Am I going to, you know, I don't do the noises on it because it, it annoys me. So it's the buzz. You know, pocket buzz. Right? 
And so, do I look? Do I interact? Am I dis- can this be a distraction? Absolutely, yes. And so Jesus is talking to disciples who've been distracted by who's going to be the best, who's going to be number one, who's going to have the biggest job when Jesus comes and destroys the Romans and takes over the world and, and makes himself king. They're, now, they have a mission before them. God has something for them to do, but they don't see it because their eyes are filled with pride. Now, so tonight when Jesus is talking about these tough words, cut it out, cut it off, he is reminding us that our choices, our choices, all of us, our choices are going to impact others for good or for evil. And that's what we need to know tonight. Your choices, the choices that you make, because Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's talking to his followers, he's talking to you, he's talking to me. My choices are going to impact other people for evil or for good. So let's, let's look at the drastic words that Jesus chooses to use. Verse 42. If anyone causes one of the little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better. And then, and he gives a picture, followed by a picture, followed by a picture. So Jesus is trying to illustrate how bad can my choice be this week when it comes to my behavior and its impact on other people in relation to Jesus. If you choose to be his follower, if you choose to be his disciple, and people know it, if they know you're a Christian, what can your life do? Well, if it does something that pushes people away from Jesus, he says, if it causes them to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large rock, a millstone, hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. Now, that's not like a very pretty picture now, you've got to think he's talking to Israelis. So we know from history that Israel, as a people, were not a sea-going people. They were afraid as a culture. Some cultures are afraid of certain things. They were afraid of the sea. The sea was a symbol of God's judgment. Jonah, when he goes out in the Old Testament, and he's on the boat out on the sea, the sea storms come up, and it comes against the boat. So Israelis are afraid, even to this day, of the water. So Jesus telling his disciples, it would be better that you go out into the sea and be drowned. It's like, a, it's like in the gut. Think of the thing you're most afraid of. Jesus uses their greatest fear. And then at the same time, the Romans used uh, drowning in this manner as a form of capital punishment. So the Romans who are in charge of them use this to take guilty people to their death, and Israelis are afraid of it His point is, you think of the worst case scenario. Jesus is saying, there's nothing worse than you forgetting that you represent me, says Jesus. And we need to remember that. Not as a guilt trip, not as a, oh, you shouldn't follow Jesus because if you ever do something wrong, he's going to take a rock and be around your neck. You're going to be out on the lake and you're going to drown. No. But he is saying, watch it. If you love me, if you want to follow me, watch it because your behavior, your choices are going to influence little ones. Notice what it says in verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, who are the little ones? It's not just children. It defines it right here. Jesus says, those who believe in me. So he's saying to his 12, you're like parents. You're the first to believe and other people are going to believe through you. So in a sense, as a leader of the church, you're going to have new people who come to faith, and you're older in the faith, and as a parent, be careful how you live your life. Don't 
caused them to stumble. Can you think about someone who's had a positive influence in your life in terms of coming to know Jesus? I can think of lots of people. I think of Nestor and Sylvia Solis. Nestor and Sylvia Solis, they're like four or five years older than us, maybe six. And when, when my wife and I, when we first met, they were the uh, youth group, high school youth group leaders. And they were a volunteer. And, and everyone loved Nestor because he graduated early from high school at 16. And he was working on Wall Street by 18. Wow. And he had a brand new car. And that's all, that's, and he had a, a beautiful girlfriend, and, and he had a gifted singing voice, and he was loving and funny and compassionate and good at basketball. So I would shadow Nestor, because like, Nestor was like the person I wanted to be. And as we were dating, thinking like, we want to be like Nestor and Sylvia. And so I thank God they didn't know it. Just them living their life, doing what they felt called to do, had this huge, profound impact. We were in New York this summer, and... It, what are the odds of this? We are on the Jersey Shore, on the shore, like playing at a little gaming place in Ocean City. I don't even know where we were. And I do a little post, like having fun, a little tweet in whatever city. And then my phone dies because it was down to 1% battery life. We're at a batting cage. Jose! And it's Nestor and Sylvia. Like, what are the odds of that? And they were there with their girls and we were there with our kids and there was just Great get-together, and we were laughing about the old times. And many of us have people like that. That's the good. Now, let's flip it. Can you think of someone that put you in a spot where you didn't want to follow Jesus anymore? Someone who said one thing but did another. Someone who talked the big talk, but you realize when you looked at their life, they were far from who they claimed to be. All of us can, I would say. What Jesus is saying is if you're going to be serious about following me is you need to realize that your life has influence and what you do matters. So what does he say to do? Um, he gives strong words, verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And then he gives the warning. Down to verse 45. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. And then he gives the same warning. Then in verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. What he's saying is you have to deal with your stuff. You got to deal with your stuff. Now, is Jesus saying you should maim yourself? Absolutely not. He's using hyperbole. He's, he's using the strongest language. But look at what he talks about in your hands. Are your hands helpful? Yeah. Think about your feet in their culture. No, no car. You, you walk everywhere. Think about your eyes and their value. What Jesus is saying is that if you're not careful, you're going to influence people in the wrong direction. So no matter what you think is important to you, think about the other people. Everything Jesus is saying here is about relationships. It's fit in this whole category where Jesus is teaching his disciples on how to live with one another and represent him. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you, 12, if you don't deal with each other well, if you don't deal with your own, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, if you don't deal with your own pride, what's going to happen is you're going to destroy each other and you're going to destroy the faith of those who see you as my representatives. What a sobering warning. Jesus is saying this, we're going to have to be ruthless with our Selves. We're going to have to be ruthless with ourselves. 
uh, and patient with others. And that's, both sides of the sentence are important. What Jesus did not say, he did not say, if your brother is in trouble, cut off his hand. If your other brother harms you, pluck out his eye. Everything Jesus says is you to you. You cut that out. You, you, you. Be ruthless. What would happen in, in your family dynamic? Okay, let's just make it personal. If you, dad, mom, kid, whatever, rather than pointing the finger, you were ruthless with your own self. What would happen in a home of six, two parents, four kids, if everyone was more interested in making sure their motives are right, their heart is right? Now you realize, when I'm talking like this, you're like, that doesn't exist. What Jesus is saying is in order for the kingdom to go forward, in order for the movement to push forward, every disciple is gonna have to be self-inspecting and not finger-pointing. Now what he's not saying, and don't take this the wrong way, he's not saying like, oh, I failed, and so... He's not saying you should be depressed if you make a mistake. He's not saying you should be in a position where you say, I'll never make it, I'll never do good. It's been years and I still don't feel like I've made it to where God wants me to be. That's not his point. His point is when you identify a problem area, deal with your own heart. It's interesting. He's like, cut out the extremities, hand, foot, eyes. Cut out the behavior but he really wants to deal with what's inside. He's not saying destroy yourself. He's saying there's going to have to be a fundamental change in the heart. And that's, my friends, is what we need. Now, how in the world do we live this way? How do we live in such a way, and can we even live in such a way, where we're ruthless with ourselves in the good sense, where I'm checking my motives and not your motives? when I'm checking my own behavior instead of inspecting your behavior. This may be a surprise, was a problem in the early church. How do we know this? Because we still go to church. What's the difference between the early church and the current church? Clothing. <laughs> we dress different. Robes are out of style for guys, I guess. You know, makeup's in for ladies. I don't, I don't know, like, but the, 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 the only difference is clothing. There's no, the human Heart has not changed since Adam and Eve. Corrupted, wicked, but full of potential. And so I want you to turn to the right. Hold your finger here. Before we just finish out what Jesus says and talk about hell, because Jesus gladly mentioned hell multiple times, go to the right to the letter of Galatians. And so you go through the Gospels. If you're new to the Bible, keep going. And then there's some letters with names, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Galatians. And go to the fifth chapter, Galatians 5, because we see clearly that a church, this is just one of many examples, most of the churches when Paul writes, if you look at it with this lens, he talks about family dynamics in almost every letter. To almost every church, he spends a little bit of time and talks about, okay, in terms of your relationship with one another, why? Because as long as I am looking for my good, as long as I consider myself the most important, I am going to harm you. I don't want to harm you, but if I'm looking out for me, you are in my way. And as long as you're in my way, someone's going to get hurt. In this case, it's going to be you. Anyway, that was a statement of pride. You're supposed to condemn me for that. No, Galatians 5. Look at what it says, Galatians 5.13. It says, you, key phrase, my what? Brothers and sisters. So 
Paul is in relationship. He's not actually related to any of them, but he is a brother and a sister because they, they all have faith in Jesus. They're, they're part of a family. You are called to be free. That is free from this list of rules and regulations, free from the Old Testament purity laws, and you got to do this, you got to do that, and then you're right with God. Jesus has set you free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the carnal part of you or the sin habits that don't stop. So when you become a follower of Jesus, something happens that changes. It changes within you, and, and, and he lists out what changes. But you need to know just because that change happens within, you still have a part of you that has sin tendencies. You still have a part of you that wants to live like Jesus didn't exist. And you are number one. It doesn't go away. So he says, don't use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature or flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Does that sound like what Jesus wrote in Mark 9? Serve one another in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. And then he quotes Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. It's all throughout the scriptures, in the beginning part, and then Jesus makes that the most important commandment, love God and love your neighbor. If you bite and devour each other, does that sound passive? <laughs> Have you been bitten this week by another human? That'd be really weird. Someone just nodded their head and I got scared. Um, <laughs> I, meant, I meant literally, but anyway, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be what? Destroyed by each other. What? He's, he's writing to Christians. He's, he's saying, you love Jesus? You better watch it. Because if you live for yourself, if you live for your freedom, you're going to hurt people. So I say, and he gives the alternative, walk by the Holy Spirit, capital S on the Spirit. Walk by the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh the sinful habit part of you. For the sinful habit part of you desires what is contrary to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit what's contrary to the sinful habit part of you. He lays it out. Your choice matters. Twelve disciples with Jesus. Who's going to be the greatest? They were arguing about it. And Jesus says the greatest in the kingdom is the servant, the humble servant, the slave of everyone else. If you don't live that way, Paul teases it out. Jesus talks about hell and burning and salt and all that. Paul uses different language. He says the same thing. You're going to devour each other. You're going to hurt each other. You're going to kill each other. And it's going to happen because you have been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, by the way, he says here, you are made to be free. Verse 13, you are called to be free. Jump back to verse 1 of chapter 5. Why did he say that? It is for freedom that Jesus Christ has set you free. How does Jesus Christ set you free? This is basic but huge. If you choose to follow Jesus, he comes and lives within you. How? Don't ask me. Ontologically, how does God live within you? I have no idea. But I do know that something changes on the inside of you. Now, and hear this clearly, you never have to sin again. Ever. Before, if you didn't have the power of God within you, you couldn't help but sin. Sin was your end result. We all did it. And we didn't want to do it, and we did it anyway. Now, you never have to sin again. Did I say you will never sin again? No. I'm saying you have the Spirit of God. Does God sin? Trick question. No. 
God lives within you. I do not have to sin. That's why I'm free. That's the freedom. Christ set you free. How? By giving you himself so you have the power to resist the sinful habit part of you. So Paul lays it out. You have a choice every day. You're going to either cave in moment by moment to the part of you that is unlike Jesus, or you're going to cave in to Jesus who's in you and for you and empowering you. We have this choice day by day. Now, so, somebody say, what's the big deal? Verse 19. The acts of, of, of chapter 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. So if you want to know what it looks like, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. This isn't an exhaustive list, but he's just throwing it out there. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, tough one, selfish ambition. Does it sound like the 12 disciples? That's exactly what they're dealing with. Dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So the list goes on and on. I warn you as I did before, and here's the warning, those who live like this, who, who don't follow the Spirit, who resist the Spirit, who say, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will miss out on everything that God has prepared for those who have the Holy Spirit. So what I am saying, and hear this clearly, is you could choose to put your faith in Jesus, totally be made new. Tonight, let's just say, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow Jesus. Great. You ask him, give me the gift. Give me the gift of life. It's that uncomplicated. You're dead in your sinfulness, in your habits, in your rebellion. You've broken God's law. You've lived for yourself. We all have. But when you realize that God is for you, not against you, and that Jesus, the sinless one, on the cross, chooses to die the death that I deserve and rises to life in the power of God so that I can now live for God, when you say yes to that, your life is completely changed, new heart, God's presence comes, but now I'm not sinless in that I never do wrong. I am just now given the power to choose to do right. So it's the father of Jesus' responsibility to choose to do right. Am I saved because I do good works? No. But are people who have been saved by God, should we do good works? Yes. That's the point. And when you don't, it's destructive to yourself, it's destructive to the people around you, and you won't inherit if you're part of the family of God is experiencing the blessings of God. So if God's the king and, and he has all things, as his children, he wants to bless us with all things, relationships that actually work, employment, work that really matters, it makes a difference in this world. He wants to use this to help other people. He wants to do all this crazy good stuff in our world. But the follower of Jesus who resists God's leading and chooses the acts of the flesh can be destroyed in terms of all the good that God wanted to do. So here's the trick. This gets weird, but you'll understand it. You ever been in a place in your life and wonder, God, why so much of this happening to me, and how come, blah, blah, blah. It may not be because of your own behavior. It could be because of someone else's behavior. But the fact is, sin destroys. And so a warning flag, you and I can choose every day, bit by bit, to follow God's leading and inherit all the king has, or disobey. Chipper message on playoff Sunday. All right, but, verse 22, alternative, but... 
That's the bad part. But the fruit of having the Holy Spirit in your life is love. That is the fruit. The fruit of having the Holy Spirit is love. God, in his love, can pour out his love in your own soul, fix the mess, and then out of his love, given to you by the Holy Spirit, you can have peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if you have that, because you have the Holy Spirit, against such things, there's no law. You don't need a list of rules. You don't need a list of rules to live the Christian life. You know what you need? A, a, a tuning in your own soul to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit within you will tell you when you're doing the right and the wrong. And if you choose the way of the right, the Holy Spirit will pour out love and give you the ability to do what in your old sin habit part of you doesn't want to do. Does this sound relatable? This is the human condition. Now, Jesus is saying, and now Paul is saying, when we don't live this way, verse 24, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So that happened. When you chose to follow Jesus, you crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So now, because you're on the Jesus team, live by the Holy Spirit. Now, he's saying, acts of the flesh, all that stuff is horrible. You don't need to do that. You've got the Holy Spirit. Now you can live the Jesus way. And when you live the Jesus way, how do you do it? Live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and don't become conceited. <laughs> Which is great. Because that's like the balance. You have the Spirit of God, love, joy, peace, all of that. And so all you need to do is keep in step with what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And when He's calling you out, say, I'm sorry, and repent, and move on. When you did something against someone else, the Spirit's saying, go, make it right. I don't want to. They don't even know about it. Make it right. Okay, you go make it right. The Spirit's there, and, and healing happens, and it's great. And then he says, oh, yeah. And when it works out, don't be cocky. Don't be conceited, because that really wasn't you. That was the Holy Spirit working in and through you. Now, why go on the rabbit trail of the Holy Spirit and evil and the deeds of the sinful nature and the fruit of the Spirit? because it has everything to do with Jesus and hell. Now go back to Mark 9. Because we were trying to figure out like this huge contrast, he says, watch out, because if you're not careful, you're going to cause other people to stumble. And then three times back at Mark 9, when we'll, we'll, we'll look at the hell part and the salt part and fire. Exciting. So exciting right now. Um, you can feel it. So he says three times, uh, look at the middle of verse 43. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to cut with two hands into hell where the fire never goes out. Uh, look at the middle of verse 45. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have two feet thrown into hell. Middle of verse 47. Better, one eye is better than two because better to go with two eyes and be thrown into hell. And then he defines hell by quoting an Old Testament Isaiah passage. If you want to know what hell is, it's where the worms that eat and do not die and the fire is not quenched. Happy place, right? <laughs> so if you're thinking hell is going to be great and we're all going to drink Bud Light, which is disgusting anyway, you're like, you know, and be with our friends, going to be a party, just in case for those of you happy-go-lucky hedonists who say live the way you want and who cares, and if you send me to hell, God, I'll have fun there. Uh, the worms don't die and it's really hot. Okay, so that's hell defined by Jesus. 
Now, we need to know that the word hell in English is actually not H-E-L-L in Greek. It's the word Gehenna. Our English word hell is, is the, the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a real place. You need to hear this. Jesus is not talking about sending people to hell. I'll explain that in a minute. But you need to know hell is real. Uh, Gehenna was a place on the southwest corner outside the wall in Jerusalem. It was the place that centuries prior, the people of God, God's people, were so selfish that they started following other gods. These other gods required child sacrifice. So God's people killed their children in sacrifices at Gehenna to honor the other gods. That's hell. Killing your kid to appease God. So Gehenna is a place where there was child sacrifice and all sorts of idolatry. So one of the godly kings stopped that in this place called Gehenna and instead made it the trash heap. So Gehenna, for centuries after, became the city dump where people would throw all of their, their, their leftovers and they would light it with fire to burn. So by the time of Jesus, Gehenna, a real place, was actually also a metaphor for what would happen to all those who pushed God away and dishonored God. There is a place of judgment. There's a place of burning. There's a place where you, in the end, get what you wanted. And if you didn't want God, you end up with life without God. And life without God is like a trash heap on fire. Gehenna. Wow. The alternative to living the godly life is hell. Now, so some of you are saying, like, you just told me that Jesus isn't sending anyone to hell here. He's not. What he is doing is he is heaping up the biggest comparison possible to say the burning trash heap, the place that smells when you, 12, don't live in harmony. It's all about relationships with one another. The reason I know he's not sending anyone to hell here is because who's he talking to? His 12 disciples. What he is saying by strong warning is that hell, a very real place, which I pray you do not go to and you don't have to go because God loves you enough and he came with his rescue plan and it's all been finished by Jesus and now if you receive him by faith, you'll walk in a new way of living. You'll really be alive and you'll escape hell. But Jesus isn't talking about if you do bad behavior, disciples, I'm gonna send you to hell. He's saying it's better to make peace with your brother and your sister than to cause this this region of destruction of hell in the lives of people. And anyone who's had following, followers of Jesus and conflict knows that you can have Christians whose marriages dissolve. It happens all the time. You can have Christians who argue and don't talk to each other. You have churches that split up because of disagreements, small ones that turn to big ones. Hell happens on earth all the time when we don't honor Jesus and deal with our relational conflict. So in other places, I'm not toning down hell. I'm just saying in context right here, Jesus is not saying I'm going to send you to hell. He is saying that very real place. Man, it's better to deal with your junk now than to let the burn, the sulfur, the anger, 
the regret, the pain, the suffering that happens when you don't live in right relationship with one another. Deal with it, Jesus says. It's better than the alternative because the alternative, according to Jesus, is hell. Now, what do we do about this? What we do is, just like Jesus, we warn people all the time. So this is what Jesus' warning is like. You have kids, and, and they're, they're growing up, and they can touch a hot stove or a hot a pot that's on a stove. What do you tell your kids if they're in the kitchen, and they're young, they don't know, and there's something burning on, on the range? You don't say, hey, try it. You'll like it. No big deal. You don't say, do what you want. We, we have good insurance. We can get a skin graft, no problem. That would be foolish. What you do is you warn your kids with fire, don't you? I mean, if you have little ones, you're like, don't you touch it, don't you touch it, because the boogeyman and the elephant and everything's gonna come. You're like, you're like, you do whatever it takes for their good. I can't believe I said the boogeyman. You, whatever it takes for the good of your kid to not let your kid suffer, you warn them the street. You don't talk about the nice cars going by. Some big evil truck's going to come, and we don't want you to be smashed, so look both ways. Whatever the scenario, you go overboard in your warning because you love them, right? So Jesus is going full on because he knows their pride is keeping them apart as disciples. Now let's weave into that. So, so what does Jesus say in light of that? Look at verses 49 and 50, because now it gets really confusing. Jesus goes from hell to the statement. Everyone will be salted with what? Salted with fire. Like, what is that? What's the last time you throw salt and poof? You're like, what does it mean to be salted with fire? Well, actually, there's an early reading of this verse that says, for every sacrifice will be salted with fire. When the Bible was written and early translated, one of the early translations is uh, everything will be, every sacrifice will be salted with fire. Now, in light of that, we think this is a reference to Leviticus 2.13, where in God's law, he said, when you bring a sacrifice, you're going to bring an animal. Think about this for a second. This seems strange, but it's going to make sense. You bring an animal to worship me, and to appease for your sin. When you bring the sacrifice to pay the penalty for what you had done, you bring them to the fire, and the animal was to be burned. And in Leviticus 2.13, it says, and every animal sacrifice will be salted with salt. So what, what's, the, what's the point of salted with fire, salted with salt? He's talking about the purity with which you're going to approach God. So you're going to bring a sacrifice, you also bring the salt, you throw it on the fire. Now the problem with salt in the first century is they didn't have like the machines we have today. They got their salt from the Dead Sea. And so when they got the salt from the Dead Sea, it had all sorts of minerals in it that wasn't pure salt. So they had to inspect, if you're going to come to God and you're going to bring the sacrifice, you're going to inspect the salt to make sure it actually is salty. You want to bring something in your worship and you want to bring something in your worship, that's right. Bring this back to how the disciples were called to live. He's saying, inspect yourself. Like salt, you check what's in. So he says, if something's in your life, like a hand that's going off in the wrong direction, cut it off. You inspect the salt. You pull out the minerals that are not pure. 
what Jesus is saying is when you come and worship him, when you live your life as worship to him, make sure you inspect yourself that your heart is right, that your life is right, that your motives are right. Everyone will be salted with salt. When you stand and worship to God, inspect yourself. And isn't that like in line with what Jesus had just said? If you don't, not only are you going to hurt your brother and sister, but your worship before God. If you say you're a Jesus follower and you never really think about what it means to follow Jesus and you don't try to follow, keep in step with the Spirit and walk with God, then in the end, your worship is going to be tainted. Jesus isn't interested in you attending church. He's interested in you growing to be more like him. And so it's a sober warning. It's a sober message. So Jesus is saying, not every bit of salt is pure. Purify the salt. And then he ends with, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And that's where he pulls it all together. This whole concept, cut it off, be careful, watch yourself, inspect the salt. He's, he's saying it different ways, but it's really one message. The way that you live matters. So you could be a Jesus follower in name, but when you take a closer look, you may not be very much like Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second. You can, you can look like Jesus in name. You're a Christian, you go to church, you do the stuff, you're a leader or whatever. But what Jesus is saying, because he saw it in his disciples, they're fighting when he's not looking, they're fighting. And he says, hey, be careful, cut it off. That's going to destroy you and hurt somebody else. Oh, by the way, be careful because when you come to worship and bring salt, you don't bring God junk. So he knows what's in your heart. Inspect your heart. Look at within your salt, so to speak, and find the minerals that are not salty, and you taste it, and you touch it, and you pull that away, and you refine it, and you make sure salt is salty. And that's why he says, what's the point? If you lose your saltiness, how can you make it salty again? It's not worth anything. So his end tagline is his summary of the whole thing. What do you really want to say? Be at peace with one another. Your relationship with other people is a part of your following Jesus. I wish it were just me and Jesus. Wouldn't that be easier? Just me and Jesus. I'm just, I'm just me and the Lord. It is never just you and Jesus. It is you and Jesus and everyone else who calls on Jesus. And as long as we're human and as long as we're selfish, we're going to have conflict. So Jesus says, work it out. The way we treat one another is going to be a determination and demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel. If we deal with each other well, I'm not saying if we offend each other. I'm offensive all the time. When I offend someone, I need to make it right. When I'm offensive, I need to make it right. When I've been offended, I need to make it right. It is my responsibility to cut it off, to check, to poke it out, to make sure my salt is salty. It's about me being ruthless with myself, not self-destructive, not downing yourself, but honest with yourself. And doing what it takes by the power of the Spirit to make it right. So two questions. If we're going to live as a family, if we're going to live this out, if we're going to live like followers of Jesus, two questions I want you to think about tonight that may drive our response. We're going to worship. We're going to respond with singing. We're going to respond with the Lord's table. We're going to ask God to really deal with us, but I want you to think about them. 
What do you need to say no to in order to live like Jesus? Jesus is saying, some of the stuff, the sin habits, all that, it's not like him. So what do you need to say no to? Whose responsibility is that? It's not mine for you. It's mine for me. It's your responsibility as a Jesus follower to look for the things and ask the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you ask him, he'll tell you and show you. And he'll probably use someone that loves you and is close to you to point it out. <laughs> like a wife. You know, he will, he will, he will use people because he loves you to say, that's not like Jesus. I'm like, oh, yeah, right. And then second, who do you need to make peace with? Because all of us have some sort of conflict. I'll be honest. Um, a family of churches is a novel concept that's hard to, hard to live out. Like there's Sunset, and there's Bridgetown, and there's Westside. As far as I'm concerned, there's only one great church, and it's Sunset. In my mind. In my brain, it's wrong, it's evil, all of it. But in my mind, there's only one. So what I want is what's best for Sunset, right? Our family. Do you know that sometimes we can't have it all? And so I find myself, this is so childish, this is so childish, find myself pushing the sunset cause at the expense of Bridgetown and Westside. Because I don't care. God, God will bless them somehow. What we need is X, Y, Z. And I think that's good leadership. <laughs> because, you know, you represent your people well. And I want to be reelected to, no, whatever, you know. <laughs> right? You, you, you love people. It's actually carnal and ungodly and causes conflict. So mark my words. Before writing that up for you, I called a few people this week and said, I was reading the Bible, and the Bible messed me up. I'm so sorry. And I got a few appointments in the next week, week and a half, with people that I've been very right in my own mind because in my eye, I'm right. But I had to take the humble pie and say, actually, I'm wrong and I need Jesus. If I need Jesus, I'm going to guess we all need Jesus. And let's ask Jesus to fill us and change us. Lord, we, uh, we're convicted when we see things that are wrong, and we want to live the right way. We really do, but there's some other piece of us that just wants what it wants, and it's not like you. And that's what we do. We call it out tonight. And I ask for my brothers and sisters, Lord, tonight would you reveal to us the things that are unlike you. And because you've given us the Spirit who is love and joy and peace, lovingly help us to cut those out. Peacefully help us to make things right. God, we, we want to live the Jesus way, but we can't do it without your Holy Spirit. So tonight, would you just come and begin the process of making us right with you and the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.